0: We are in a series of messages from John's Gospel, personalities from John's Gospel. And this morning, chapter 4, message 4, the woman at the well. Last time we were discussing Nicodemus in chapter 3. What a contrast between Nicodemus and the woman at the well. Let me just kind of paint that picture for you very quickly. Nicodemus was a Jew. This woman at the well was a Samaritan. He was a highly respected member of society. She was practically an outcast. He was a person of strict morals. She had lost her virtue. He was a cultured and learned teacher of Israel. She was an ignorant woman of the lower classes. He was wealthy. She was poor. Yet in spite of the differences, both had the same need of spiritual transformation. This reveals the great work that the Holy Spirit is doing in our world this very moment. People of all strata coming to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, mingled together, drawn by various needs and desires, but all finding life transformation by an encounter with the living Christ. Senators are finding him. Entertainers are finding him. Sports personalities are finding him. Outcasts are finding him. Business people, housewives, youth. There is a groundswell of spiritual interest in the world today. What is it in man that makes him want the living water Jesus spoke of? Well, I think it could be described with an illustration that I read years ago about an interesting bird in South Africa. The bird is called the weaver bird. It is the only bird... That I know of that makes its nest out of reeds, lines it with soft grass, and then makes an entrance into the nest from the bottom. That is an innate instinct of this bird coming into the nest from the bottom. Once a naturalist placed two weaver bird eggs under canaries outside. Of Africa. They hatched out and then continued reproduction for five generations. None of these five generations of weaver birds ever lived in a weaver bird's nest or with another weaver bird. After this time, the fifth generation of weaver birds were returned to their natural habitat in South Africa. Immediately, They searched for reeds and wove a nest. They lined it with soft grass, and guess what? Built an entrance from the bottom. The scientific proof of natural instinct. That, my friends, is what we see in man today. Why did... Svetlana Stalin, born, bred, raised, and indoctrinated in the home of a classical atheist, Joseph Stalin by name, leave her home and become incurably religious. The Soviet Union may try to keep everybody in atheism for 200 years, but the people will still hunger for God. Why, just two weeks ago, when Billy Graham was in communist countries, did they flock by the thousands to hear the preaching of the gospel and a simple, thus saith the Lord and the Bible says. Because in man is a longing to be at peace with his God. It's there and nobody can take it away. It's there planted by the Almighty and it will remain forever here in John 4, is a woman who admittedly had lived with six men. She was the Elizabeth Taylor of her day. And I don't say that with any great pride. I think it's a stench. And it is a tragic thing to have to give a public name to relate to what we see here in John chapter 4, but it is indicative of our time to our shame. She longed for recognition, and she longed for satisfaction, and had never found it. In all of her search, in all of the pleasures so called of this world, she had never found what her heart so longed for. Until that remarkable day when she met the stranger of Galilee, the man in sandal feet and seamless robe. There are two parts to my message this morning. The first is called the divine urge. Notice it with me in this passage of scripture in John 4. And he must needs go through Samaria. Why did Jesus go through Samaria? I call it the divine urge. It was love that made him feel the necessity of passing through that despised place. It would be like stopping in Watts in Los Angeles. Dangerous despised place. People that in the culture of the time were looked down upon. I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying it was the thing that was the case as it is in all too many places today. But he stopped there because of divine urge. I think it's the same thing We find in Jeremiah 20, verse 9, when Jeremiah said, His word was in mine heart like a burning fire, shut up in my bones, and I could not be still. Divine urge. You've all felt it. Some of you feel it today. Some of you are here because of divine urge. This is not your normal habit. This is a first for many of you, perhaps. You don't know exactly why you're here, but you're here. I call it divine urge. He must needs go through Samaria. Paul felt it when he said, Woe is me if I preach not the gospel. And again when he said, The love of Christ constraineth me. Divine urge. Francis Thompson wrote a poem called The Hound of Heaven. I have referred to it before. He was saying that wherever he went, God followed him. He was saying that wherever he turned, God was there to save him and to bless him, the hound of heaven. I love that title. God is like that. He is not willing that any should perish. As far back as our first parents in the Garden of Eden, God was calling, and he is still calling today. And when you go from Genesis to the last chapter of Revelation, you will still hear that word, come. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him that heareth say, come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. That's God. He calls. He's the hound of heaven. He urges us to get right with him, to live the way we should, to straighten out our life, to confess our sins and to let the blood of Christ blot out our iniquities and to walk through this world in righteousness and holiness and godliness. He must needs go through Samaria. Some it's something within us. God said, Adam, where art thou? And he's been calling ever since. John, where art thou? Mary, where art thou? Peter, where art thou? Glenn, where art thou? The divine urge. Romans 2.4 says something I want to insert in this point of my message that sometimes we overlook. Not everybody is here in church today because of calamity. Not everybody has come out of crises Romans 2.4 says, The goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. What a verse, what a thought. The goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Sometimes it's the Bible that leads men to God. Other times, a dedicated Christian, a neighbor, a friend, a witness. Sometimes it's a church standing by the freeway saying, Come in. Sometimes it is trouble. But here Paul says, the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Any sensible person here today, if he will just stop and think, will have to say, God has been good to me and I ought to serve him. I want you to consider this on that basis. The goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. How did you get the promotion in your job? Out of your own cunning? Who gave you the mind to think with? Who gave you the hands to work with, the feet to walk on? Who put that blood in your veins that pumps into the heart and out again through the various arteries and veins of your body to give you life? God did. It wasn't something you did, sir. God did that. And the goodness of God ought to lead you to repentance. Do you think the promotion came from your own intelligence? He gives you the strength and the wisdom for every task and could easily take it away at a second's notice. Every meal you eat speaks of God's goodness Every night you sleep, every paycheck you draw, anything that comes your way should make you say, God has been good to me. I want to say today that I would like to see this trend turned around, that people only find Christ in difficult times when tragedy has struck. I think it would be much more wonderful if we would see men come to God because of His goodness Men who say, I didn't do this. God did this for me. This wasn't something that I dreamed of. God gave me the idea. God gave me this food. God gave me this family. God gave me this job. God gave me this opportunity. I turned to him out of goodness. (laughs) Hallelujah. Hallelujah. When I fell in love, I sought every means to prove my love a trip across the Midwest through the night, an engine that blew up in the middle of the night on Labor Day morning, actually, 1952. I was so anxious to get to her home, for I had been gone three months traveling in a quartet. We were not yet engaged. We had actually only had four dates, But I knew what I wanted, and I was on my way from Tulsa, Oklahoma, where our last service was held, to Monroe, Wisconsin, through the night. And this stupid Chevrolet engine blew up. (laughs) Would you think that would stop me? No. I woke up a mechanic. I said, you've got to get your crew out. He said, I can't. It's a holiday. I said, you can too. They'd love to get your overtime. The crazy guy did it. He got his whole crew out, pushed that thing into his garage, lifted that old engine out, put in a new block. And in a matter of hours, I was out on the road again, heading toward Monroe, Wisconsin, in that Chevrolet, World War II vintage. Why? because I was in love. Flowers from Springfield, Missouri on number 22 anniversary because I was there with the Foreign Missions Board. A new suit carefully picked out in the ladies' store where you feel so stupid just being there. A man roaming around through the racks of women's clothing looking for the right thing. And the lady says, can I help you, sir? I said, no, I've got to do this by myself. (laughs) I didn't want anybody around me. Just let me find what I think will do it, and I'll get out of there as fast as I can. Nicely wrapped, beautiful ribbon, presented on her birthday, candy to say you're sweeter than the sweetest morsel I have ever tasted a this-is-your-life presentation on her 50th birthday and our 30th wedding anniversary, which took me three months to put together and was able to keep it absolutely secret till that moment when David Grant said, this is your life, Mary Cole. Why would I ever do things like that? Because I fell in love, and I haven't been able to get up since. Now she carries the checkbook herself. (laughs) I never thought I would ever do that, and I still wonder if it's wise. But I do it. I looked at her the other day and had to say again, I don't believe I've ever seen that outfit before. (laughs) I did not know a woman needed so many shoes. How could you ever wear them out when you only wear them once every three months? Does it bother me? Sometimes but I let it go. I have never thought of divorce, never murder once, (laughs) but never divorce. (laughs) What am I talking about? A lovesick human being who's willing to risk his own Life for another. I just keep wearing the same old thing so she can have whatever. <laughs> I said all that to say this. You'll never forget that. That's why I wanted you to hear it. No lovesick human ever sought to show his love as much as God seeks to show his love to us. There's no way that we could love like God loves. He puts up with us. Even through our wanderings and our sins and our waywardness, he still shouts, I love you, I love you, I love you. The goodness of God ought to lead us to repentance. He's been so kind and so gracious, so wonderful to me. He must needs go through Samaria or through Sacramento or San Francisco or wherever. He must needs go because He cares. He loves. That's His personality. That's His nature. He will do anything to bring you into light and hope and eternal blessing. He must needs go. It's the divine urge, and it will always be there. Obey it. Secondly, we must talk about responding to the divine urge. Verse 15, the woman said, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not. Notice now she begins to respond. Up to this time, she's been groping, trying to figure this whole thing out. Why would a man sit there asking water of this Samaritan woman when he was a Jew? Obviously. Something within her is reaching out. Jesus begins to lift the veil from her past life. Go call thy husband, he said. (laughs) Jesus knew all about this. and What's he trying to do? He's trying to get her to respond. Go call thy husband. She sadly confesses, I have no husband. Her heart was responding, I have no husband. And that was basically correct. She had probably lost her husbands by the misconduct of her own life. And the man she was living with, the sixth, was not her husband. She had had five, this was the sixth, and they weren't married. I have no husband. And she's uncomfortable because now she changes the conversation. She says, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Let's get off this subject of husbands. (laughs) How we like to squirm out of honest encounters with Christ. We say, Oh, the family is waiting, or the roast is burning, or the altar is too far away. I'm not such a bad person after... I know a lot of other people that are worse than me. That doesn't excuse you. How we like to... Find a way out. How we like to find a crack in the door to get through so that we won't have to face the encounter. She says, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. I don't want to talk about this husband thing anymore. Let's get away from that. Jesus knew that this woman must face her past. Her new life must begin on a basis of truth and honesty. It had been totally opposite for so long. The rubbish of her life must be cleared away. He was not going to get into a religious controversy, so brought her back to the basic issue, her own heart relationship to God. God is a spirit, he said, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Wonderful point in the way Jesus dealt with her. He didn't get involved and meshed in some controversial subject. He didn't get involved with her on where Cain got his wife and all of that nonsense. He brought her back to what he knew was her need. And then the most dramatic verse in this whole chapter, the 26th verse. She knew that Messiah would come and reveal all things. Somehow she knew that. That message had gotten to her. And then Jesus said, and I almost get goosebumps when I say it. I that speak unto thee am he. Oh. I know that Messiah comes, and when he comes, he will reveal all things. I that speak unto thee am he. Rajneesh, I that speak unto thee am he. Stalin, I that speak unto thee am he. Muhammad, I that speak unto thee am he. Neighbor, I that speak unto thee am he. He is the living water. He is the fountain of life. He is the bread that if you eat, you will never be hungry again. The water that if you drink, you will never thirst again. I am He. Their conversation was interrupted by the return of the disciples, but the work was done. Notice, that's the last thing Jesus said. The disciples came back, verse 27, marveled that He talked with a woman. Then verse 28, the woman left her water pot. As these men were looking at the situation, wondering about it, this woman just gets up and heads into town. Something had happened. Something inside of her had taken place. She forgot her old water pot, symbolic of the unsatisfying qualities of the water of this world, and ran to tell of her discovery of living water. And in town, in Sychar, a Samaritan town, guess what she said? Come see a man. I can imagine the eyebrows popping up through town. Another one? Not another one. Come see a man. But that wasn't the end of what she said. A man who restored to her the dignity of womanhood the man with living water, the man who told me everything that ever I did, come see this man. This one's different. He will give you something lasting. Hallelujah. What she had longed for in all of her relationships was now taking place with this man. You can respond to the divine urge today just like she did The world has nothing to offer, my friend. You soon grow thirsty. It gets old. Dealing with people who think the companion they married 30 years ago isn't good enough today, I say, well, what do you think the one you're interested in now will be like 20 years from now? You think it will be any better? It all gets old. It all grows so meaningless unless you have living water to drink. You can't bend the rules and think you'll get by. doesn't work. Take the example of this woman. This woman needed something that would last. She hadn't found it in six men which might be an indictment against men huh? in some way. But it simply says that any of us without living water are only groping, we're only looking for something new to satisfy, and it does not work. Remember way back, I told you a story about a fellow who was outside the garbage pickup area. He wondered how to get rid of his garbage, and he he on a novel idea. He took a box and poured his garbage in it and wrapped it up in pretty paper and put a ribbon on it and set it out on the curb. And he stood at his kitchen window looking out, saw a car come by and suddenly stopped. Person got out of the car, looked both ways, grabbed that package, put it in the car, and burned rubber getting down the street. <laughs> the rest you have to imagine... as this person takes this thing to a secret, secluded place, his prize, a big package with a beautiful ribbon, only to open it and find the scraps of yesterday's meal inside. Potato peelings. Grapefruit, rind. Coffee. That was used last Wednesday. Smelly, dirty, worthless garbage. That's what this woman was like until this day. She was trying to put a pretty ribbon around all of her garbage and it did not satisfy her until she met a man who told her everything about her and yet had never met her and who offered her living water to drink. It's the picture of the seeking soul. God sees something desirable in us, and he hounds us until we stop and say, I surrender, I give up, I'm going to do it your way. Man struggles with programs and committees, posters and parades. God specializes in touching unlikely lips like those of the Samaritan woman who runs on happy feet to bring scores of others to living water. Do you want a way to check out what you have today in the spiritual realm? Four simple things in this narrative that will help you. Number one is, in verse 14, the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. It should be a fountain. No drabness, stagnation, or dullness in serving Jesus. A fountain. Is your life a fountain? Or are you just existing? Is it a drag? Are you struggling to get up in the morning? Are you struggling to get through the week? That's not the water Jesus gives. That's not what I'm experiencing. Life is exciting and meaningful and full. It's a fountain, my friend. That's a way to check out your experience. Is it a fountain? Or is it a bunch of rules? And is it dead and dry? Secondly, it should be within. Like the woman... The inhabitants of Sychar went thither to draw. They went outside to draw water. But when you find this water, you don't have to go outside yourself. There is delight and pleasure within. There is meaning within. There is a fountain, he said, of water springing up within. It's not out here. It's not in the lottery. It's not in the last affair. It's not in eating at the most expensive restaurants. It comes from within. Hallelujah. Springs up inside. Test yourself. Do you have to get it out here or is it in here? Third test, it should be eternal. The water of Jacob's well would not provide lasting relief. I've been to that well. I have had several drinks out of Jacob's well. But it didn't satisfy me. I've had to drink many times since then. But the water that I took when I was a boy at the well Jesus talked about has satisfied me to this very moment, and it will until I die. It has never left me thirsty. It has never left me wanting What about what you're putting your life into? The fourth test is it should be satisfying. It's life. No one has ever found less than life when coming to Jesus. I love sports, but I honestly feel sorry for people when I watch them on television at these games. Even today, my heart bleeds for people who have just Given their whole day to the big game. And tomorrow they've got to go back to the routine, and they'll be so empty and so sick. Some of them are over in the pubs right now, waiting for the big screen to come on. I guess it's already on for the 49ers and the Atlanta Falcons. They're already on, and they're over there drinking their suds and watching the big screen, and looking at their idols. But tomorrow there'll be emptiness and they'll have to try something else. It'll be the Monday night game tomorrow night. And then Tuesday, they'll try the lottery. And Wednesday, they'll try the night out on the town. And Friday, it'll be another woman. And Saturday, it'll be a hangover and a headache. That's not what Jesus gave this woman. What he gave her lasted. She never again had to have another man in her life. She had Jesus in her life, and she was satisfied. Why do you keep looking other places and in other things? And even believers, members of this church, why are you going after the next big deal and omitting the one who can make it last. Oh, come to Jesus. I get many calls to speak. Some I can accept, some I cannot. But one I accepted recently Bobby Novak called me. Prison Ministries and in the inner city ministry. He has a church on 14th and E. If you don't know anything about 14th and E, just go down and park your car there someday, but keep your eye on it. I admire Bobby Novak. And he asked if I would come and preach at his dedication of his new neighborhood outreach. They had taken a building on that corner and remodeled it and made a lovely little auditorium He's reaching the inner city at 14th and E. And we had a great time. Shortly after that night, Bobby talked of a shooting about two doors away from their church. In that shooting, one man was killed and another was wounded. After the shooting, Bobby was standing in the neighborhood with some of the older hoodlum types drug addicts, former prisoners talking about the crime that had been on their street. One man said to Bobby, You know, man, I've got to give you credit. No matter what happens out here in the street or on your doorstep, you stay. And then he said to Bobby, And I'll tell you something. I hope you never leave, because we need you in the middle of this madness. I admire people like that. But when I heard Bobby's words about that incident, in my heart, there was a broader scene. Jesus stands in the middle of our madness, and he says, hey, I can put it together. I know all the pieces, all of the intricate pieces. I know how to put them together. And I really love you, and I really care. And it it doesn't matter how much you've blown How far you've gone, in the middle of our madness, he stands. And to tell you the truth, folk, I hope he never leaves, because if he does, in the middle of our madness, there is no tomorrow. It's only Jesus that satisfies the soul. Like the woman at the well, I was thirsting for things that would not satisfy. But then one day, I met a stranger. Have you met him? Is he in your life? Is he real? If not, you have the most golden opportunity of your life right now. Let us stand together, please, throughout the sanctuary. There's another song in our book that says the Savior is waiting to enter your heart. Why don't you let him come in? With our heads bowed before I pray and this service closes, how many of you here today would like Jesus to pass by and touch you? Maybe you've never given your life to Christ. Why not today? Maybe you have and you're walking apart from his presence. You're seeking things that do not satisfy. You've kind of set up your own rules and you're not happy. Would you raise your hand and say, Pastor, that's me. Include me in your prayer. Raise your hand real high and hold it there until I see it. Then you may put it back down. Thank you over here to my right. Raise it up. Thank you back there in the middle, right in front and over to my left, way toward the back. And over there by that back door, God bless you, and over here to the left, friend, God bless you, thank you so much. Others, raise them up, then you may put them down, once I've seen them, I'm looking for something to satisfy, yes, thank you, sir, right on the aisle there, God bless you, thank you back over here to my right, God be with you in a special way, each of you that's lifting a hand. Are there others? I want to include you, thank you, way toward the back wall. Jesus Christ is in this room, just like at Sychar, at the well. He's here, and he can do what nobody else can do. In the middle of our madness, let's find one who knows the answers, who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending. He can put your life together. Anyone else, before prayer, lift your hand. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Thank you. God bless these men who have raised their hand. Thank you back there. Another, God bless you. As Jesus stops where you're standing, give him room. He is a loving friend. He died for you. Nobody else has done that for you. But he did it willingly to redeem you. Now, Lord, I thank you that you've given me the privilege to preach this gospel once again. What a privilege to address this great crowd of people, not only these in the sanctuary, but as my voice goes over the radio, I have been able to address hundreds of others who are a part of this service. Reach out to everyone that's reaching out to you, Lord. Oh, Jesus, you know all about us. You know all the good we've done and all the bad we've done. And the bad usually outweighs the good. But you forgive us, hallelujah. You redeem us, hallelujah. You blot out our sins, hallelujah. Oh, let living water flow to those who are in need. And let those who have been in the way for a time but have not tasted lately the freshness of your presence. Fill them this morning with your glory. Come to us. I want us to sing the chorus we sang earlier, Fill My Cup, Lord. As we ask those of you who raised your hands to slip to the altar, my associates will be here. I want to give you a tape and a booklet. I want you to come for a special moment together before we leave. All of you raised your hand, no matter where you're seated or we're seated, just step into the aisle and come forward. Give us an opportunity together. Make it public. Say, I'm going to follow Jesus. Men, women, you come as we sing.